0: Good morning, everyone, for the second time. I should have said that the first time, shouldn't I, really? And uh, let me add my welcome, if you are with us for the first time, it's great to have you with us, and for the 101st time. Not that anyone will know that if it's the 101st time, there's no chance that you've been counting that far, uh, but it's great to be together. We are in a series on being forged into God's image, uh, about how God is working in us. Yes, he is... He is God is working in us to renew and recreate us. Uh, this picture reminds us that he, he applies, as it were, his, his fire to us, making us open to change. And when God creates, he creates well. He creates masterpieces. So I'm hoping that as we go through this series, you are going to feel more and more confident in the fact that God is at work in you, and he's doing a good job, He's making a masterpiece. Today, we're looking at this theme of being forged to bring freedom. I want you to keep that phrase in mind, if you can, for uh, the rest of the time that we have this morning, forged to bring freedom. And we're going to look at that through looking at the story of Moses, uh, which stretches right through the book of Exodus. Uh, In particular, the story of coming out from Egypt is in chapters 1 through 14, and we're not going to read all of it. So I just want to remind you, because it's a really familiar story. I'm sure that the great majority of us will know the story well. I just want to remind you what this story of Moses uh, was. He was born a slave in a community that had been forced into hard labor for the glory of their masters. Through unusual circumstances, as in this picture on the screen of Moses being put into the basket in the river, through unusual circumstances, Moses, born a slave, was raised a prince by the slave owners. One day, he saw the injustice of that slavery firsthand, and he acted by committing murder. Murder. He was found out, he ran away, and he spent decades making a new life in the desert. Then, one day, he saw a bush, and it was burning without being consumed. And from it, God spoke, saying, I am the God of your Father. I have come down... To rescue my people, so now go. I am sending you to bring my people out of Egypt. Moses was unsure, but God provided both the power to do miracles and a co worker, Aaron, his brother, to cover the things that Moses found hardest to do. Moses returned to Egypt and passed on. God's command to Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew slaves go, and instead made life even harder for them. Now, Moses did not organize peaceful protests, nor did he raise a riot, but rather he announced a series of catastrophes that wore Egypt down so that they were finally willing to free the Hebrew slaves, who then finally set off towards Canaan from where their ancestors had come four centuries before, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's one perspective on the story, but there is another. There's actually another even more important way of telling the story, which the book of Exodus also includes, in which it's not so much the story of Moses, but the story of God. In Exodus 2 and verse 25, it says, God saw the people of Israel and God was concerned for them. Chapter 3 and verse 8, God says, I have come down to deliver them. And towards the end of that arc of the story in chapter 14, it has this simple statement, thus the Lord saved Israel. This is the story of God. It's not just about Moses. It's far bigger. It's a story about God. God who chose Abraham and promised to bless his descendants. In the fourth generation, God worked through slave traders and jealous brothers, to bring Abraham's great-grandson Joseph to Egypt to ensure that there was provision for the family through a prolonged famine. There, in Egypt, they grew to be a numerous people, but they also began to be oppressed. And they cried out in their pain, and they cried out to God... And God responded by opening a door on the next chapter of his great plan. God came down to a bush and made it burn. God spoke and brought Moses on board with his planned intervention. God guiding Moses, God equipping Moses just as was needed, God acted in power in the ten plagues, God parted the Red Sea and God sustained the Hebrews through their desert wanderings to the promised land. Moses led the people to freedom, but God is the true rescuer. God is the iron worker, the smith. Moses was his creation, forged in a fire at the burning bush To bring freedom to a nation of slaves. I'm just going to draw out three three points here about God, first and foremost. And the first of these is that God cares. That's an ancient piece of Egyptian uh, artwork showing slaves at work for the Egyptian nation. God cares for the miserable and the oppressed. It says in Deuteronomy 26 and verse 7, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. God cares for the miserable and the oppressed. And people like Moses, who are forged by God, come to share in his care for the miserable and the oppressed. And so it's no surprise that Christians have a long history of caring about social injustice. When we think of social injustice in the church today, we most commonly think of William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery in the British Empire 200 years ago, just a bit more than 200 years ago. But, you know, that story is just the tip of the iceberg, in the early church, there was a practice in local churches of clubbing together a fund to buy slaves from their masters and then set them free. That's pretty cool. In the 10th century, it's a little bit of history I've been reading about recently, because there's lots you read about the early church, and then there's this kind of big gap until the Reformation. I've been trying to educate myself. And do you know what? God was active in that thousand years? (laughs) Like, who'd have thought in ways that I was less aware of than than I've become? In the 10th century in particular, there was a new Christian movement that went under the name, a vision that they had called the peace of God. Uh, And that peace of God was all about defending peasants who were not slaves in the sense that the ancient world had slaves, but they were some kind of... Indentured laborers uh, who were miserable and toiling and oppressed. And to make matters worse, there was a new class of armed horsemen that began to be developed in that century. We call them knights. And they pretty much acted as they wished, like the mafia going round. Uh, with indiscriminate violence, taking what they wanted. If we think of chivalrous knights, that's because of the influence of the church over several centuries teaching them chivalry. <laughs> it's not how it began. And the poor were subject to wanton violence. And this movement sprang up called the Peace of God, particularly in the Uh, geographic area we now call France, and in this vision, anyone who attacked the poor would be excommunicated. And so this vision of peace began to spread, and actually it went hand in hand with a religious revival, with passionate worship services and miracles of healing. That's cool. A fully-orbed gospel for the soul for the body, and for society. Later in history, just a few generations before the famous William Wilberforce, Moravian Christians were selling themselves into slavery in order to gain access to slaves so that they could better minister to their needs. So we get to William Wilberforce, and... He's just the tip of an iceberg of centuries of God's people having been forged by God, caring for the miserable and the toiling and the oppressed. God still cares today. Do we? Slavery was banned 200 years ago in the British Empire but racism is far from dead in modern Britain. If someone from an ethnic minority in Britain today changes just one thing on their CV, that is changing their name so that it sounds like a white British name, they're nearly twice as likely to be called for interview. Surveys have shown that if you you are a member of an ethnic minority in the UK, you are three times as likely to be denied access to a restaurant, entrance to a restaurant. And if you live in London, then the Metropolitan Police are four times as likely to use a taser on a black person as on a white person. And... The statistics sadly tell us that right now racism is on the rise in this nation and not on the decline. And I, as I prepared for this morning, I found myself thinking were I not white and British, I imagine I might be a bit fed up with hearing about Wilberforce. God still cares about injustice, <laughs> do we? God cares. Hey, and God calls people. Here's the burning bush and Moses. As early as chapter 2, we'd seen that Moses already cared about the slavery. It says in chapter 2 and verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, the Hebrews, and he watched them at their hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses cared. And he carried a sense of injustice. But that that burning sense of injustice that Moses felt it didn't lead to freedom, but it led to rather it led to violence. And so, in addition to the burning care that Moses felt he needed the burning bush he needed that encounter with God at which he heard God's call in 5th century britain there was another young man who is like a mirror image of Moses Moses was born a slave but lived a prince as a prince this other man called patrick was born to a rich family in Wales but taken to Ireland as a slave where he was forced to work through snow and frost and rain as his memoirs tell us years later following a vision and with this sort of divine help patrick later saint patrick patrick escaped slavery in ireland and returned to his family then One night he had a dream, much like the one that St. Paul had regarding Macedonia that's recorded in the book of Acts. Patrick wrote this down I had a vision in my dreams of a man who seemed to come from Ireland. He carried countless letters, one of which he handed over to me, and I read aloud where it began the voice of the Irish. And as I began to read these words, I seemed to hear the voice of men who cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. I was deeply moved in my heart, and I could read no further, so I awoke. And that was a call to Patrick. Following it, he returned to Ireland, where amongst other things, he opposed slavery And saw a great many people set free. He received a call from God and then worked to great effect. I see that a call from God is greater than a simple awareness of the need. It is a heaven-sent instruction which comes through a voice which commands that justice will roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The need may compel us, but it is the call of God that authorizes us. So Christians oppose injustice not merely as disgruntled and offended human beings, but as agents of the King of Kings. Martin Luther King describes his call to ministry in this way, showing that not every call comes through a dramatic burning bush. Martin Luther King. My call to the ministry was neither dramatic nor spectacular. It came neither by some miraculous vision nor by some blinding light experience on the road of life. Moreover, it didn't come as a sudden realization. Rather, it was a response to an inner urge that gradually came upon me. This urge expressed itself in a desire to serve god and humanity and the feeling that my talent and my commitment could best be expressed through the ministry at first i planned to be a physician then i turned my attention in the direction of law but as i passed through the preparation stages of these two professions i felt that within i felt i still felt within that undying urge to serve God and humanity through the ministry. During my senior year in college, I finally accepted the challenge to enter the ministry. I came to see that God had placed a responsibility on my shoulders and that the more I tried to escape it, the more frustrated I would become. That sounds like a call from God. One way of describing a vocation... A call from God is that you really are unable to do anything else, however hard you try. It's not all about a key burning bush moment, but there is a call from God when we know that He has directed us, which transforms us from those who are simply disgruntled and offended to those who know ourselves to be agents. Of the King of Kings, sent with his authority to bring change in his world, to bring freedom to the people whom he loves the miserable, the toiling, the oppressed. Many compassionate believers are so busy getting on with service that, like Martha at Bethesda, we forget to linger in communion with God to hear his voice receive his instruction and go out in his authority. The life of Moses shows us that encounter with need alone can lead to murder. But encounter with a living God leads to abundant life. Not only for us ourselves, but for many. Which brings me to the last point. And... Uh, someone else is going to come and speak in a minute so don't think we're about to finish Just uh, as you'll see in a moment uh, my last point is this it's God cares, God calls and God conquers this is a little picture of um, some Israelites wandering through the Red Sea that's parted and with killer whales I doubted that killer whales swim in the Red Sea so I looked it up there's been one sighting of killer whales in the Red Sea one, in the late 1990s. So, so they, they are there, and this picture's cool. The Exodus story tells us that it is God who conquers. The journey to freedom was not one that was simply organized by activists. The key actor was God. In the story of Moses and of Pharaoh and of the Exodus, we have sticks that turn to snakes and back again. I can't do that. You can't do that. God can do that. We have a river that turns to blood, then frogs and gnats and flies and disease and boils, then hail and locusts and darkness and death. All of which were God's action, getting more and more dramatic and extreme in His determination that His people would indeed be set free. Now, Steve Beegu is going to come and share a little bit. He has a testimony of God's power setting free.
1: Great, Can I have the slide up, please. That'd be great those who are free can free others slaves can't free slaves now my father is from Mauritius and slavery existed in Mauritius until 1834 but in that year a vessel named the Sarah arrived in the capital Port Louis, and the first of the indentured labourers arrived from British India to this other corner of the British Empire. Slavery had finally been abolished across the colonies, but there was a problem. Slavery was vital for the plantation colonies at the time, as massive profits for the sugar industry relied on it. The colonisers knew, however, that for the sugar plantations in Mauritius to continue, they'd need a workforce... And in the same year that the British abolished slavery in Mauritius, they decided that this remote island would become their great experiment. Instead of using slaves for the work, they would use indentured labour for the sugarcane fields and factories. They decided to turn to India to ensure that Mauritius became the sugar granary of the empire. And so maybe my own ancestors were among the very first thirty-nine indentured labourers from South India to arrive on the Sarah in 1834. The vessels which then sailed to Mauritius were known as coolie ships. Coolie, a derogatory term for the Indian workers, such as other derogatory words which you might know for Africans that were used. I can remember being called a coolie still back in the 1980s. Now, those sought to enlist were seeking to escape poverty and famine in India. But given the high levels of illiteracy, few workers understood the terms of the contract they put their thumbprint to. They couldn't write a signature. They were commonly misled about where they were departing for and the wages they would receive. Many were tricked or persuaded to sign by the British agent, who then promptly took them to the emigration depot and to plantations overseas. They were entrapped by force or fraud. They were lied to about the length of the journeys. Ship conditions were similar to those on slave ships. And many men and women died en route. The plantation conditions were harsh, with excessive hours and menial wages. And given the physical condition that was weakened over the long voyage... This also took its toll. The records indicate that in 1900, one in eight of them would die each year. Children, having reached the age of five, were expected to work alongside their parents. They were supposed to receive wages, even a small amount of land. There was promise of a return passage once their five-year contract was over. In reality, their masters seldom let this happen, And although the conditions were harsh, the risk of death on a ship home was high. Eventually, under pressure from Mahatma Gandhi and others, the system of indentured labour was finally abolished by the British government in 1917. It's been just over 100 years now. Over the following century, their descendants became the population of Mauritius. Many of these later migrated to the UK in the 1950s and thereafter. And my own dad, my own father, did so in 1970. Now, wouldn't it be understandable if in these descendants, this history, this trauma, still had an impact? It'd be understandable that a sense of being a victim, a sense of a deep need to protect yourself and your family from injustice, a sense of expectation that you should be a slave to work, that holidays and rest are something you're not worthy of, that affirmation and value is dependent on your work, and possibly even a high sensitivity to authority figures handing things inappropriately, hmm, these beliefs and expectations, this thinking could be understandably deep-rooted, couldn't they? About three years ago, in my working hard for God, seeing God at work, seemingly successful in many ways, the stresses and pressures of work over several years led me to significant illness. Debilitating stress symptoms became a daily and sometimes hourly threat. And although experiencing God close through these times and leading me through, I still regularly got to a point of some very frightening thoughts and desperation. The help of pastors and doctors and the wisdom of learning to rest and take exercise properly had all started to improve things, but I knew I wasn't free. And I knew I couldn't free myself. My um, burning bush opportunity, however, was about to arrive. As a work colleague recommended the RTF, Restoring the Foundations course, 15 hours over five sessions a vulnerability before God with a trained Christian couple probing, listening, working with the Holy Spirit over two months. The couple said they do it for free. Oh, but how could I possibly find the time so busy and uh, working like a slave? However, I made the choice, and in faith, I went. It became clear that the abandonment and mistreatment of my ancestors was highly likely to have led to negative behavior patterns flowing from father to son to son to son. Self-protection, a tendency towards anger at authority figures, seeing work and effort as a route to salvation, fear of poverty, These were all issues which continued into my own beliefs and thought patterns. There were components of learned behavior and spiritual inheritance which needed to be recognized and dealt with. I needed to have revealed a deeper understanding of who I was in God. And how the negative beliefs handed down to me were working against this. Cutting off any curses and closing the doors of these negative past issues proved a foundation for finding freedom and also to receiving revelation as to why I might think in certain ways which then led to stress and illness and certain reactions to events. Experiences in our childhood and our teenage years are shaping for all of us, aren't they? And the RTF teaching showed, and the Holy Spirit revealed, how I was responding even now in ways consistent with how my thinking had been formed during traumatic experiences as a child in my younger years. And how these were even linked to my ancestors' experiences. This thinking needed to be addressed and exposed with great honesty and childlike vulnerability. I had made decisions and received beliefs which had shaped me. I needed to discover and directly apply the wonderful truths that God had to reveal to me in place of those old beliefs so that I could find greater freedom. One of these beliefs was this. I am more likely to keep people safe and get problems sorted if I slave away and address them by myself. In practice, this was clearly a lie and led to huge pressures and stress. The truth is that on all occasions... Get this into your head, Steve. I am likely to keep people safe and get problems sorted if I trust them first to God and other people. I was taking so much false responsibility to protect myself and others and sort out issues in unrealistic timescales that whenever a problematic email or phone call came in, the stress symptoms would immediately start. They could even be triggered by just hearing the... Boo Email arrived. Sound. Another lie from childhood, forged in times of bullying and unkindness, was this. That I must do everything I can to make sure everybody likes me. An impossible expectation. And it was still with me and was a cause of a root anxiety and stress. The better belief that, Steve, you can expect to not have everyone liking you, and that's okay, is hugely freeing, if I can learn to believe it. Allowing God to change my understanding of my identity from valueless victim to being valued and victorious in Christ is a huge foundational shift. It's actually still going on somewhere deep inside my spirit. I've been a Christian since a child. I've served as a youth leader, a preacher, a teacher, a school leader, a pastor. I've taught such biblical truths and understood them to some level. But something of an exposure of my soul was necessary so that these truths could go deeper, so that who I am in God could become stronger, so my love and appreciation of him would increase. And I really appreciate that, God. And as a result, I believe I will be able to extend in greater ways his wonderful kingdom of sons, not an Empire of slaves. Deeper faith is replacing debilitating fear. The process of sanctification, this forging, is again at work to be set apart for his new purposes and to leave a variety of hindrances and the sin of stress behind. Freedom from any slavery. So I'm now engaged in walking out the freedom that I've gained and although i've faced blips i know something has changed already the biological physiological stress responses have gone which is so exciting when i have faced stressful situations since i face them differently and some of us here today need freedom from our past even our families past like Moses did. Some of us here need to take the opportunities God is putting before us to stop and to meet him at our burning bush. Some of us here, particularly those in leadership places or quite experienced, need to resolve to allow God to deal with us and heal us. Or we won't be able to make the next steps in the journey of freedom that he has for us and those who are free can bring freedom to others.